Thank you for listening. This is the Legends Podcast by All Day Vinyl, and I'm your host, Scott Devilson. After you finish this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please check us out on Instagram at All Day Vinyl. Today, I'm here with a legend, an amazing producer, an engineer, a mixer. He's recorded some of my favorite albums of all time, Time Out of Mind and No Mercy by Bob Dylan, Blue Noise by Neil Young, I'm Waits, Real Gone, produced my favorite Lucinda Williams album, World Without Tears. <laughs> and recorded and mixed Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball and so many others. Okay. I want to introduce my guest here, Mark Howard. Yeah, thank you, Scott, for having thank me you. over. So Mark has been a recorder, a producer, a mixer, a gorilla. How do you describe yourself? A gorilla? Recordist. A gorilla <laughs> recordist for well over 30 plus years, almost 40 years. Yeah. And one of Mark's key innovations in the world of recording is taking musicians out of the studio and putting them into homes and uh, places. Yeah, locations. Yeah, spaces, yeah. So talk to me a little about how the history of spaces, what was being done before you, and how Mm -hmm. you've taken this to another level. So it kind of all started for me in New Orleans where I got asked to come to New Orleans to make a record with the Neville Brothers. And Daniel Enois was a producer of that record at the time. And he asked me to come to New Orleans to help him set up a studio. And so I thought he meant a, a truck. And so I was, had it in my mind, I was gonna do a recording truck. And, but when I got there, he said, we're gonna just rent a place and, and make the record inside of there. And so that's kind of how it started for me. And I haven't been able to shake it since. So every location, I find a cool house or some kind of atmosphere and, and I, just have all my own gear. It was actually it was Daniel's gear in the beginning, and now I just kind of find the location set up. Usually, they're more like music camps where the artist stays there and all the musicians, and so everybody's all under one roof. And that way, you can live live the record also. So it's it's an interesting concept, and I I just don't like to work in normal studios because of isolation and communication so with communication i can easily say to you scott can you you know just sing a little bit higher in this section or you know but if i'm in a recording studio i gotta press a button goes to a set of phones you don't have them on and i gotta run out there it just complicates communication where having you right beside me is direct bang and so that part of it is is key for me And I get really frustrated when I go into studios and can't get, you know, through to the artist or just for a simple comment, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating. So this way I'm in the room with the band and I've developed, well, I I didn't really develop it, but I record with the speakers on and I make it more like a, like, like you would live, you know? So I usually have a, a pretty big sound system with like 18 inch subwoofers and, and you know, like a, a stack of speakers, and and so when when you record it, I play it back, play it back loud, and it moves the pressure. And as you're recording, you can hear yourself, you know. And I got effects on you, and it creates this vibe that when you're recording, you're in this kind of bubble instead of like being in headphones and isolated. This way, you're you're excited, you know. And so this this has developed a way which I'm calling guerrilla recording. And because most people don't want to have speakers on or have leakage. And I use all that to my advantage in a way that it's 
some of my best drum sounds that I've ever gotten came out of the vocal mic. And even with the delay on it, it's like they sounded cool. And so yeah, I think the accidents that happen this way are more interesting than than when you work in a recording studio and everything is, you know, you do everything the same way all the time. At, everything's so dry and dead and, and boring sign, sounding this way. It's really exciting off the floor. And, you know, it really gives the impression to the artists that they sound great. <laughs> and let, let's, let's touch on that first location you mentioned, which was in New Orleans, which you did with the Neville Brothers. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that this was the first time the Neville Brothers have recorded outside of a studio context. It is, yeah. And that was the Yellow Moon album, which yeah. is a great album. And it had, I believe, a really great cover of Bob Dylan's God on Our Side. Yeah, there was a beautiful cover. Beautiful cover. And I, I say that to lead into that New Orleans house is where Bob Dylan, you and Daniel Lanois recorded Oh Mercy. Yeah, right? Yeah. So how, how did this come about? where Dylan, who assuming also didn't record outside of studios, right. came about to New Orleans and landed with y'all. Yeah. To- so, you know, we were just finishing up the Neville Brothers Yellow Moon, and Bob Dylan had come through town to play a show there at the, at the zoo, Ottoman Zoo. And so Bono had been talking to Dylan and saying that he should try making a record with this guy, Daniel Lenoir. And so... The, Management set up a meeting. We went to the show and we met Bob after, after his show and we went on his bus. Usually Bob walks off the stage into a car and gone. And this, this time there was a bus there. And so we met him. He invited us on the bus and he asked us what we were doing here. And we said, you know, we're making this record with the Neville Brothers. And he asked, what's that like? And I said, well, Dan had said, you know, we covered a couple of your songs and Hollis Brown and got on your side and. And Dylan said, well, what's that like? And Aaron Neville was singing God on Our Side. It's, it's stunning. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. And so Bob said he'd come over to the studio the next day to have a listen before he left town. And so he came over, he heard it, and he really dug it. So we, Dan and him, said they'd make a record. And so Dylan left. And so Dan wanted to go to New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico to make a rec- his record there. And so he flew me to New Mexico and I videotaped a bunch of these beautiful houses, o- adobe houses. And, and I found some a really beautiful one, uh, George O'Keefe's house. And I thought that would be the killer house to make the record in. And so I videotaped it, came back to New Orleans and showed Dan and, and he loved it. And then I he got on the phone with Bob and said, you know, we found a beautiful place in Santa Fe, New Mexico, George O'Keefe's house be a great place to make your record. Bobby goes, Santa Fe, New Mexico. What are you talking about? The altitude is too high. You can't sing that high. It's like you get dizzy, you know? So ended up, Dan says, well, you know what? Why don't we just make your record here in New Orleans? It's below sea level. And I think we'll, we'll make a cool record here. So I'm, had the Neville Brothers record, I made it in this kind of like apartment building. And so I had to get out of there because I only rented it for six months. And then I found this other beautiful kind of like Victorian house in the Garden District. And that's where we made uh, the O Mercy record. How was he affected by working in a space like that? Well, if you remember, uh, Dan had asked him 
So, Bob, what do you think about like recording like this in the house? He goes, what are you talking about? I've been doing this for years, you know, the oh, big, the big, tapes. big pink, uh, you know, the whole house. And so like, you know, that whole scene, right. he kind of, they invented it in a little way. Right. And uh, we were just carrying on with the tradition, but he dug it and he, he felt really comfortable that way. It was a, an interesting time for him. You know, he, you know, I think what was his last record? Like a, an burlesque. Or, right. What was that? They thought he was a Christian record. That that was Infidel. Infidel. Did, uh, so those are great records. By yeah. The way. Yeah. So, so he kind of come out of that period and not that those records weren't great or anything, but I think the Omar Sue record was kind of a, a change for him. And so uh, where he was writing in his head, you know, you know, Dan was asking him if he could, you know, write a song like, you know, one of the, you know, one of the classics or whatever. And he goes, I don't know who that guy is anymore. I, I don't know what that is all about. And like those songs just came to me and, and now they're gone. And so I, I, and so he had all these new songs. And so it was a, like a new chapter for him and he caught it. And so I think it was kind of cool. And when you guys got the songs to listen to before you ultimately recorded, were those the sessions with Ron Wood or did that happen at a different time? Yeah, we were, well, it was kind of odd. Uh, it was, Dylan had sent a cassette of something for us to listen to. And we thought it may have been the Ron Wood sessions to, to hear the songs, but it, but it wasn't. And it was like some other blues singer that he sent a cassette of that he wanted to like be like or uh, Al Jolson or something like that. And so I, I thought that was kind of bizarre. But later on, I got the why he sent it. And it was uh, more about phrasing and, and stuff like that which was important, man. Yeah, so. And it was a very creatively brutal uh, partnership between you, Dylan, Marquette, and Lenoir. Yeah. But it was also, there was a lot of conflict, I understand. There was, you know, in the beginning, you know, it's like, Bob, you know, we didn't know Bob and he didn't know us. And so we just had to, you know, find our boundaries and what we can get with him and what we can't. And, and so things got a little bit, you know, not shaky, but, you know, just uh, communication wasn't quite there. And I think uh, we were being tested and we were testing him. So at one point, you know, Bob, you know, would just play sloppily and just, you know, he wasn't like, you know, you know, he, I'd put the microphone in front of him and he'd turn over here and so I put the microphone over here and he'd turn over here. And the same thing, he'd get up and go in the other room and play the piano. I moved all the drums to the other room and, and he'd get up and come back into the, into the uh, kitchen. And it was like, so I was just falling him like a, this lost dog. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it, it was, it was interesting. Lanwell, he can be, he's very passionate with his music and he really wants to get something out of people, but his his uh, things that he does as a producer work with certain people but it didn't work with bob and he's more like a cheerleader he likes to cheer people on and and you know like as they're playing he'll be you know using a tambourine or just something to create an energy in the room that didn't work with bob he didn't get it or i don't think that worked for him and so maybe lenwa and him didn't see eye to eye on a couple of things and so it got heated for a minute and Lanois lost his mind and grabbed a dobro and 
and smashed it over this floor wedge because Dylan wouldn't wear headphones. So I had like these floor wedges you have like live. He smashed it over this right in front, like as close as we are. Bang. And so I just thought, oh, shit, what's going on? I just got up and walked outside, went into the guest house to get a drink. I thought, okay, we'll work it out if, if they don't kill each other. <laughs> and so I heard the gate open and close. Uh, I guess that was Dylan leaving. And I went in there back into the studio and Dan was gone. And Dobro was laying on the floor with a big, huge dent in it. And and so it was it was kind of, you know, thinking, oh, geez, what's happening? Are we still going to make the record? And so the next day, Dylan came in like nothing happened. And same with Lanois. And so suddenly... Bob was a different, you know, he's a little more open to to us. And so, like, maybe for the first two weeks, he didn't even acknowledge I was in the room. And because I'm a motorcycle enthusiast and I like, you know, vintage Harley Davidsons and other motorcycles, and he saw that I had a couple in the courtyard and he asked, he goes, hey, Mark, uh, you can get me one of those? And I said, yeah, I think so. And so I went to Florida. Actually, I called my friend in Florida who I got a couple of bikes from in the past and I said, I'm looking for a bike. And so he sent me some photos. And so I had this little Polaroid of this beautiful 1966 Harley Davidson Electrified. So he sent it to me and I gave it to Bob. And Bob put it on his like little table that he works with. And he just kept looking at it and he goes, I want that. <laughs> so I went to the week on the weekend, I went to uh, Florida and picked a bike up. And and uh, where was it, Destin or somewhere like that? And so yeah, so after that, you know, we were friends, and we were we talked on motorcycle culture and stuff like that. And so when he came in, I would take him out for rides and show him, okay, this is a good place. We go up to the levee and get out onto this highway, and this goes all the Annabella mansions. And so I showed him how to get out without you know get, getting too too caught up. And then one day he would start to go out by himself in the morning and. and I said, Bob, you know, oh, he said to me, he goes, the, the police are very friendly. They're always waving at me. I said, well, Bob, you know, like in California, there's no helmet law, but there's a helmet law here. And so you need to wear a helmet and the cops are just waving at you to put a helmet on. <laughs> so, so I thought that was pretty strange. And and then I, another time I heard him take the bike out of the gate and heard him drive around the corner and then the bike stalled. And I thought, what's going on? And by the time I walked around the corner there was like three people standing in front of him hey bob can we have your autograph and uh, so i walked up and he just sat on the bike like straight ahead like there was nobody there and i thought i, I just told the people leave the guy alone and so i walked up i checked the bike and he forgot to turn the uh, petcock on for the gas so i turned that on started back up and then he took off again <laughs> so so yeah so it was a uh, interesting kind of uh a thing between me and him, you know, with motorcycles. And so, and he trusted me with some of his music and what do you think of this line? And, and I, I thought that was pretty cool where if anybody else would have did it, he wouldn't listen to them because I would just give him, you know, I was being truthful where I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that's great. Or blow smoke up your ass. And he's used, yeah. and, but so I would be honest. And so he respected that. And and that really helped me for time out of mind. You know, that was another kind of chapter that I did with him, and and I kind of came in, you know, already yeah. seasoned. <laughs> yeah, he clearly, you know, valued you at the. I think when he won 
was it the Grammy or an Academy Award? The Grammy, yeah. The yeah. Grammy, he specifically shouted you out. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, pretty, pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that was on Time Out of Mind. Yeah, correct? Time Out of Mind, yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. So after, after recording Oh Mercy, very critically acclaimed album, it's one of the, the greats of his catalog at this mm -hmm. point, that conflict that you alluded to clearly made some great art. And I think Dylan did an interview once, you know, he did an interview once where that Dobro story was mentioned and his comment was, I don't mind people smashing guitars as long as it's not my guitar. <laughs> so it's, it sounded, it sounded like, <laughs> and from what you said that after, you know, it was a whole different vibe that might've, that might've been the jolt that yeah. you'd like him needed. Exactly. And so, so 10 years later, eight years later, you're, going to do time out of mind how does that come about and where where are you recording that at that time i was in oxnard california i'd rented old 1940s mexican porno cinema that had been dilapidated and closed for many years and, and i turned it into a studio and i took out all the seats and kind of you know spray painted all the curtains black and made a cool vibe in there and so that's that's we were i was working out of there and I had a deal at that time with Lamois that I would supply the location and he would supply the gear. So Dan had all his gear. He let me use, you know, to put in there. And so we had this thing where he had six months, I had six months. So I'd make some records and he'd make some records. And so it was at that time, Dylan had asked if we, if, if I could mix this live, uh, live show that he did it in atlanta for the olympics and i think that was 96 97 i can't remember one of those when was the olympics or 96, somewhere 96 96 yeah so so yeah so i i mixed that for him and he he would drive up every day from a point dune where he lives and and he just come up in a pickup truck by himself no security no nothing so it was kind of cool you know, he could just walk around the town and nobody knows who he is. And he had the freedom to, to do whatever he wanted. So that was cool. So right after I had finished mixing that live uh, show, one of the last songs, Bob said, you know, there's harmonica on this last song. I said, okay, cool. And he goes, do you think he can make it sound electric? I said, yeah, I think I can. And so I took it. It was done in his vocal channel. And so... I just ran his vocal channel into like a little uh, tube screamer distortion pedal and into a little tweed amp, then mic that and brought that back up on a fader. And so when he heard that sound, he really loved it. And he goes, oh, it's amazing. I, I want that on all, all the songs. So I had to remix the whole, the whole live record wow. to put that sound on there. And that sound became what I called the vocal amp. And so that was at the, at the time. Of after that, that was the beginning of Time Out of Mind. And so he would come in and while we were doing these mixes and you go, Daniel, I, I want you to listen to this so song and he played on the piano and, and but he never sang. And Dan said, yeah, that, that's great, but I need to hear the song. And so the next day, you know, Dylan said, oh, I got this other song. I want you to hear it. So he plays it and, you know, doesn't sing anything. Dan says, like, you know, oh, I really like this one, but I'd like to hear the lyrics of this one. And so he didn't sing anything. And then the next day, we had a friend from New York that came in to, because Dylan was interested in doing some stuff. Uh, he goes, 
you know that kid Beck? I really like his record. I I'd like to make a record like that. And Dan says, yeah, we do that. We do loops and all this kind of stuff. And so that's why we brought in Tony Mangorian. He was from New York and he does, he's a drummer and he does all that kind of stuff. And so, so the next day, Tony's there and Bob's there and Bob comes in and he starts playing this kind of gospel vibe on the piano. And Tony just goes to the kit and he just kind of plays this like hip hop thing along with it. And so Dylan's playing this gospel chords mm. and Tony's playing this groove. And then he starts to sing. And I'm always recording, you know, like, you know, everything's always mic'd. And you go anywhere close in that room and I got you. And so, so I put the machine in the record. And, and so then he starts to sing. I can't wait, you know, and so yeah. so it's, it's this like gospel hip hop version of can't wait, and it's like amazing, and so but he only sings a verse and a chorus, and so I just took that and made it into like a, a song. I just copied the verse into the next verse and chorus, so that way you could listen to it as a song, and so so that became the kind of template of where we were going with the record. And Bob, when he would drive in every day, he was listening to this old blues record radio station. And he says, why, why do those records sound so great? You know, like I says, they're very limited, you know, into microphones and what they used in those days. And, and he goes, why can't my record sound like that? And I told him, yeah, it can. We just got to use that approach. And, and uh, less is more, you know, like uh, less microphones you have. The bigger it kind of sounds, and these days, you know, it's like twenty-one mics on the drums alone, and that all comes down to like small sound. Where if you use one ribbon on it, it's like jump bottom, big sounding. And so, 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 yeah. So the the song "Can't Wait" was kind of like that was the pinnacle of how it kind of started. We got this beautiful, cool vibe going on, and you know we. Did a couple other, you know, songs. I think Mississippi and maybe something else that he he let us hear. And so, yeah, it's great. Let's it's it's let's make a record. And so Bob was excited about it, and we were all ready to go. And the theater was like amazing sounding in there. It just was like, you know, you go close to anything and you play it, it sounds incredible. And Dylan says, "Well, yeah, but this is too close to home to make a." He goes, uh, I want to go to Miami. And so I packed up all the consoles, all my mics, everything that I was using. And we went to Criteria Console, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, recording studio in Miami. And that's where a lot of big records had been made sure. and, and Oceans by Eric Clapton. And, you know, who else? Is Stills recorded. Stills, yep. And a lot of the seventies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was that Tom Tom Dowd? Tom Dowd, yeah. So so we we went there and I thought, okay, well this is cool, you know. Yeah. And so we get there and suddenly that room is no longer available where those records were made. Now that's their tape vault. Really? And so they got this big, huge video room. This big room, big spitty room. It sounded like shit in there. And so I set everything up and it was just sounding really bad. And I thought, I just said, we got to get out of here. This just, this doesn't sound good. And so I started looking for other locations around Miami and I called, actually called the, who are they? Who's that band from Miami? The three brothers, four brothers uh, from Australia. 
or BGs. BGs, yeah. I called the BGs because they had a studio there, and they said, "No, we we don't rent our place out." And, so, and I found a Masonic temple. I thought we could make it in there. That'd be cool. But it ended up it didn't pan out, and I just had to like work with what I had. And so for Bob, I built this like little tiny apartment out of gobos and like he had a door and. And so he had his own little spot that he could hide out. And I put a lamp in there, got some cool lighting. And so we made the whole record in this room and it was like 15 people. And it got crazy in the way of Bob doesn't write the song on a piano or, or a guitar. He writes it on a typewriter or on paper sometime, or it's in his head. And so he doesn't know what key his voice sounds best in. So he likes to change every take would be he would change the key. So with musicians, when you change a key, it's like relearning the song. You know, it's like your hands are in a different position. And so for a lot of the, you know, we had some of the best players on the floor out there with him. And, and when he changed the key, it was just like really bad. And, you know, like people make them bad, you know, changes. And so they come back in and it's just sounded so sloppy and really bad. And, and, and Lanois gets kind of upset about all this stuff because they're the key changes. And, and he says, it's sounding so junky. If you don't know the changes, don't play, you know? And so, and so that's what happened. And, when he when he said, you know, it sounded so junky, Keltner was like, Oh. He goes, Is that East Coast junky or West Coast junky? You're <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh geez, here we go. Oh, that was pretty funny. So yeah, so it, it got it, it got a little bit out of hand on that record too, where Dan had, you know, was was kind of pitching to get back to that can't wait vibe. And we'd already cut Can't Wait and we we did three different t- types of versions and we ended up with like this Pink Floydy kind of like more drugged out sounding one, and, and then there was a rag doll one that was kind of like loosely kind of held together, and so so we ended up using that, and so Lanois wasn't happy with it, and Bob was like, "We did it, you know, it's done." And so one day Dan's working up the band before Bob got in, and uh, Lanois would like mime him in the mic i can't wait i can't wait <laughs> fuck bob wants right in like what the fuck you guys doing he goes oh just trying to get back to that gospel version he goes it's done and dan says well i really love that version of we had and he goes you said tony get over here and tony the bass player tony garnier goes tony how often do i ever do something the same twice Never, Bob. I never seen you do anything the same, Bob. Right. And so uh, it got into this whole heated thing where Bob wouldn't talk to Lenoir anymore. And so I'd be sitting at the console with Bob, and Bob would, uh, and then Lenoir would lean over and say, Sounded great, guys. Sounded really good. And Bob would turn to me and goes, You hear somebody talking? And I said, No. <laughs> and it got to this, this point where it was just like, you know, where Lamwell kind of got exiled from the studio and Bob would only talk to me and Lamwell would come to me to tell what me what to say to Bob. And and then, so after Dylan walked in when we were working up that version of Can't Wait, uh, 
Dylan picks up an acoustic guitar and he's holding it by the neck with the body out on this side and then this thing. And he's like, he's like swinging it. And, you know, like, I think he's going to hit him. He's going to hit him. <laughs> and it didn't happen. And so it, 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 the vibe just changed. And Lanois brought in his brother, Bob Lanois, to, to do some filming. And so he thought, wow, I, you know, I'm going to like put candles all over the whole studio. And he spent a thousand dollars on candles, you know, and he's got the whole place lit, you know, like with this thing, it looks pretty, you know, pretty crazy. And so like four o'clock rolls around and Bob walks in, in the back door of the studio and goes, what the fuck's going on here? It looks like there's a seance in here. Turn these fucking candles off. Put the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> Bob was fired. He, they sent him home the next day. It was all, all terrible. Anyways, he had already gotten some some footage from from that those uh, sessions. So I think that was pretty pretty cool. But in the end, it was kind of everybody was getting sent home separately, and Tony was the first to go, and then a couple other people left, and so it was down to like a core of guys. And so we brought in. Keltner, Jim Keltner came in and, but Dan wanted to have somebody on his team. So he brought in Brian Blade, this jazz drummer from New Orleans. And so they set up their two kits side by side. And luckily, Brian, he's like, you know, jazz drummer. So he kind of took care of the hi hats deal. Mm -hmm. And then Keltner just had a shaker. <laughs> Is that right? And so I just had one stereo mic split between the two of them and then one holes mic in front of them. So it was like three mics. You know, there's so many people and we're working on 24 tracks so i can't spend much many mics on the kit so and then a lot of the sound of the room was coming through the vocal mic and i had a delay on it flange and all this kind of crazy weird stuff so i think that record sounds that way because it was it was in that room and it sounds pretty open and there's a real depth of feel to the way it sounds and you know i was very embarrassed a little bit the way it sounded because we, i got such a great sound at the at the teatro and then there i thought this doesn't sound nearly as good as what i had there and but you know still feel you still feel that way well it's i feel differently now that time has set in but for a while i just i was i i just didn't didn't really think i had done my best work you know when, at what point do you realize that because it sounds like it was a very there's a lot of tension in the environment but at what point do you realize this is solidifying into something that's really special well well first of all like once we finished the record we didn't know whether this would even be a record and so because dan didn't want a copy of of what we'd done and i gave bob a cassette and so and so we packed up and everybody left and uh, we never heard from Bob for months. And we thought, okay, it's done. You know, we, we, we haven't heard from him. I guess it's not going to be a record. So I got a, a call from Bob in, in the middle of the night and he goes, Mark, what do you think? Do, do, do we got a record? And I said, yeah, I, th I think you should come back in. Let's finish it. And he said, oh, really? I said, I don't know. And like he was humming and hawing. So, I said, yeah, just just come back up, and we'll 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 take care of. It. Let's listen to what we got and make a, a, a opinion on what's going on. So he doesn't show up, 
another couple months pass and he calls me up again and goes, Mark, you know, I've been listening. I was playing it for my friend in Santa Monica and his apartment. I got a knock at the door and some guy, the neighbor from down below had heard it through the wall. He goes, what are you guys listening to? Like, uh, I got to get a copy of that. And so my friend told him that, you know, just my friend's record. It's not even out, nothing. And so Bob calls me and tells me about this. And I said, yeah, Bob, it's, it's, it's amazing. Got to get back in here. So the record was never, it was, it was shelved, I thought, at, at a certain point. And then once he came back in, we started working it and seeing what we got. And that's when certain, certain playbacks from Miami, I couldn't better the sound. Like there's a song called Love Sick. Mm. And so it comes on and voice is just like in your face. And I'm like, and I was always like trying to, you know, do when they came back in, I trying to like excite the band and I put flange on Bob's voice and uh, an echo. And so like just make it sound as strange as possible. And so I just print a mix of, of that to, to a thing called a DAC, digital audio tape. And and so that's how we, we worked in those days. We'd print instead of half inch, it was the DAT machine. And so I printed it there and then I tried to remix it and I just kept on putting that old mix on. And that's the mix that's on the record. When the band came back in the room, they, I did the playback and that's, that's it. And it's like, and so we use that. That's the first song on that record. And if you ever listen to that record, listen to the very first three songs. And you start to notice like every, each, each one of them all start with, I'm walking as I'm walking down these streets. So walking. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so it, it's, it's kind of crazy that I never realized that until somebody pointed it out to me. So, and I made the record, that, but yeah, Bob would always come to me cause I'd write his lyrics in my book. And so he didn't have any lyrics on paper. So he was always like looking over my shoulder to see what, what's in there. And I always write the first word and the last word. And every time I'd listen back, I'd fill it in. Bang, 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 bang. So I had like a copy of the lyrics. And he did, he, there was a song called Highlands and 17 minutes long. And I was working on these big, huge 14-inch reels on a two-inch tape recorder. And they la only lasted 17 minutes. And so Highlands is 17 minutes. And so... We did, we did two versions of that, and so we ended up picking the one that's on the record. But there's a whole other version that has completely different lyrics of Highlands. And, and so Bob would say to me, go to the uh, 15th verse and pop me in for the uh, third word. I'm like, <laughs> luckily, I had taken numbers on each of the verses, and I knew where I was in the song because, you know, it, when you're working on a two-inch tape, you don't have a waveform. You don't have any sight stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to know where it is in your head or, or take numbers off the tape recorder and stuff like that. So I had taken the numbers of all the little sections. So, but because Bob doesn't want to wear headphones, I had to put two speakers in front of him out on the floor. And then I had to pipe the music through the, through the speakers. And then I had to have another mic that was beside him because... When I punched him to re record, I had to take his voice out. So he was only hearing his voice come out of the vocal amp. And so because of that, I had to punch in to record, take down his vocal, turn up the, the microphone that's in the room so I could hear him sing. And when he sang, when he stopped after that word, I had to punch him out. And so it was like this 
kind of like crazy kind of thing to, to do where just to get out. And he, he's not doing anything the same twice. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I punch him into that and you know, two inches, like once you punch in, there's no undo or anything. Yeah. So you got to make sure you, you get in and out without cutting a, the vocal off or, or the breath, you know? So he decided to have a little fun with me. He go like, you know, can you go to the sixth verse and go in for the very second to last line? And so I like, yep, <laughs> and so I just like, he's never had anybody, you know, be able to do that with him that can, you know, you know, so he was, he, he, not that he was testing me, he was just having fun with it. So you, you shared an anecdote previously about Dylan and the pianos in the studio and why he chose a specific piano that he yeah. liked. Oh, that was on Oh Mercy. Mercy. Yeah, so we we had prepped for that that record and with music, uh, with instruments and stuff like that, and so it was a it was a beautiful kind of like you know Victorian mansion with pillars. And it was the room that that we had that we thought we thought we were going to record it. It didn't happen. We recorded it in the kitchen, and but I had three pianos in a row. It was like a nineteen eighties. Steinway C size, and then there was a an old Steinway, like eighteen hundred Steinway, and then there was a Baldwin piano we got from the local music store, and so we had them all lined up, and so Bob would always go in and he'd play the Baldwin, and Lamlaw got you know excited that he was like, what, what, you know, got up the nerve to go to Bob and say, you know, Bob, like, you know, every time you come in the room, like, why do you pick the Baldwin? You know, do you like the action? I, I want to buy one of these pianos. Like, we're just wondering, you know, why why you keep coming to the ball one? And Dylan turns around to him and he goes, because it's the only one with a stool. <laughs> <laughs> so we all had a good love. love. And, and then he had, there was a song called Ring Them Bells. Yeah. And so uh, I think, so it's on piano. And so ring them bells. And I think there's a, a line, and the fighting was strong, but the way he sang it and the, his phrasing, it sounded like, and the farting was strong. <laughs> and so every time we heard it, we'd laugh. And he's like, why do you always laugh when that part goes by? And we said, yeah, it's just, he never fixed it. It's, if you still listen to it, it sounds like that. <laughs> but yeah, it was an interesting record because I had beautiful, huge kind of ballroom set up with these pianos, and I built a about the O'Mercy, the O'Mercy record, the, yeah. Early. And so that that room, I built a a drum booth over the sandbags and glass lighting, double glass lighting doors, and I figured you know it'll be isolated, you know, at least with the drums. And we never even went in that room and recorded in there, except for the piano song. And then the whole record was made in the kitchen kitchen dining room and so it was uh, we always just ended up there so that's where we recorded it <laughs> amazing yeah and after after time out of mind was released and got its critical acclaim you know what when you when you look back on those sessions did, did it have a different perspective how it all came together uh yeah you know like it it, it won you know three grammys and it, it 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 really, I think something happens with time. You know, like I'm in there, and so I'm so used to it. And then when you have time away from it, and then you listen to it again, 
like you you really understand and respect it but with the microscope on it all the time like you, you can only see so, yeah, certain parts right. of it because you're you know you're you're in there deep and so it takes some time to, to set back from these records and same with oh mercy it took you know a good 10 years for that one to, to land and i think now it's a lot of people's favorite and classic yeah. too i mean those two are pinnacles of dylan's catalog in the last yeah. 30 plus years but on on time out of mind after it was done bob got sick and uh, he got he some kind of lung infection and so he had to he went into hospital and so he was calling me really high on pills and you you would ask requests he was requesting like changes in the songs and stuff like that it's to do some edits for him and so there was a song i think i called it doing all right and i think it's now that it was called till till uh what's it called till a year i can't remember what the name was but he asked me he said uh can you take the first verse and take the first verse and put it in the last verse take the last verse and put it in the first verse and this is while i'm mastering the record and so so i do that i make a cassette run it over to his house drop it off he listens to it and i go to mastering and we put that in there and then he calls i drop off the mastering and and he goes no it's not right but he goes why don't you try taking the first verse and just getting rid of the first and so i did that edit and took it over to him and so so that was he he went with that version but i still he didn't like the sound of the mastering so i was in there for a month almost mastering the record because i had made these cassettes what were they called maxal xl 2s in those days those were the hot you could really pin those meters you know and make it sound exciting and so he had this cassette he was lit had been living with and every time i could, went from the mastering he put the cassette in put the cd in his box and then he'd have the his you know tape there and so he, he goes you know what it sounds good at seven but not at nine you know like Oh, what does that mean? <laughs> and so I go back in and we would run the whole record through like a lathe, through like a vinyl lathe to capture some kind of analog sound. And so drop off a cassette CD at his house. And he goes, no, the cassette still sounds better. And I'm thinking, shit. And we tried everything, you know, and like all these different EQs and compression. And it was like, he hated it all. And so I said, you know, that's it. I'm, don't know what else to do, but I'm going to take the cassette deck into the mastering with me. It was a Tascam D30 or something like that. And so I put the cassette deck on on the mastering desk, and I Joe Gasworth who was mastering it. He goes, what's that? I go, this is the sound. <laughs> and we put it on all his millions of dollars worth of gear. We couldn't get close to this cassette deck. So that whole record was mastered through a cassette deck. Amazing. And so that's why it sounds a little bit like how that it sounds. Vision. Yeah, yeah. So it's got a real kind of, you know, open kind of beautiful sound. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing these amazing stories. <laughs> this is this is part one. We're gonna have a part two coming with Mark and we're gonna talk about Neil Young's Lenoise and we're gonna talk about Tom Waits Real Gone. So thank you, Mark. You're welcome. And we'll <laughs> see you guys soon. Please rate and subscribe. Thank you. Thank you.